0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozon. More than two generations after the end of colonization in North Africa, France still suffers from the undigested legacy and after effects of a brutal empire that has spanned over two centuries and whose perverse reverberations are still felt today. Earlier this week, Khalil spoke with French-Algerian Nasira Gunev Soliamas, Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at University Paris 8, about French President Emmanuel Macron's policies to combat homegrown terrorism, while simultaneously acknowledging some of his country's legacy of racism and genocide and how the French state is trying to cope with a recent new wave of terrorism on its soil. Professor Nasira Ghanif Swilemas, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and
1: North Africa. It's so good to have you back with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's it's very good to be back indeed.
1: Professor Ghanif, Emmanuel Macron came to power five years ago proclaiming that colonialism was a crime against humanity and pledging to return stolen national artifacts to their rightful owners in former African colonies, which Mm -hmm. took some courage and, and was unprecedented in French presidential politics. So that's to his credit. And yet, here he is now passing new laws, seemingly singling out the French Muslim community, and speaking of Muslim separatism in France. In your opinion, what explains this paradox?
2: Rather than a paradox, I would rather say that it's a strategy that has been going on since he was a candidate for the presidential election. Because, as you mentioned, when he made this statement about colonialism being a crime against humanity, he was in Algiers, actually, in Algeria, which is striking when you think of, you know, making this kind of statement during a presidential election campaign in the capital of a former colony, which was actually a French department. It was not just a colony. So I think that strategically he was very keen on gaining the votes of those on the left who are descendants of immigrants, colonized people, even from people who come from former colonies where there was slavery, he knew that this would speak to a lot of people. And he was right. So the strategy was paid quite well in return. But I would say, you know, I was thinking about that lately, trying to counter terms between saying this in, in uh, 27 and then having this. It's not just this law, actually, there are very much, you know, it's like, four or five laws in a row that have to do with uh, minorities, with uh, suspicious politics, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and the one that you just mentioned about the Islamist separatist, actually it's not about Muslim separatism. It's about, that's interesting because he really coined the, the expression, he said that it's about Islamist separatism.
1: Okay, so he's not including all Muslims. uh, It's not supposed to.
2: It is not supposed to, but actually he just hurts all people who are related to Islam or feel like Muslim. Anyway, so coming to terms with this kind of paradox that you just mentioned, it came to my mind that maybe Macron is not so much a person of uh, deep convictions, of deep belief. I think he's more about gaining power and retaining it. And so to me, looking back to 2017 statement, I would say that actually, I'm not sure he was very sincere. And I think that maybe he's more sincere about what he's doing right now. So of course... In both cases, there is this notion that he wants to win an election. This was the case in 2017, and it's again the case because the presidential election is next year, and he has to work really hard from now on and even before because the Islamist separatism stance started last year. It was a year ago, and even though there's a pandemic, even though there has been so many dead people. I mean, a lot of people died in France also, over 60,000. Anyway, he kept with this agenda up until the law was proposed. And there was a very uh, cynical way of exploiting the horrendous murder of Samuel Paty, this teacher in northern Paris, school
1: who had taught about the Charlie Hebdo caricatures to his students yes right,
2: right. you know but the the teaching setting is one thing the other being killed or a murder for this is another one that would be interesting to get into the details but what is interesting on the side of Mike Hall and his government that there was an exploitation of this terrible event and in favor of enhancing the whole issue and the whole prospect of gaining votes through this notion of uh, Islamist separatism.
1: So, this grand écart, as we say in French, or this disconnect between being, on the one hand, much more empathetic to the former colonies by saying this terrible what France has done, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, just basically agreeing with the far right that. Something needs to be done about so-called Muslim or Islamist separatism. This disconnect, you think, is just an attempt on his part to bring as many voters from different disparate horizons as possible?
2: Yeah, right. There is this interesting uh, parallel between the moment when he he paid tribute to the memory of the teacher who was killed in Atlas Sorbonne, which is not not any other place. It's a very symbolic place. So by doing this, he was obviously paying attention and trying to catch the the agreement of all the leftists and especially of teachers, of uh, of all kind of educators and people who are in favor of an open society. Although he mentioned during his speech that he would uh, always make sure that cartoons could be and caricatures could be could be protected as a freedom of expression in Mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. And this triggered, as you know, a lot of reactions across the world. But I think that this was geared towards the left, kind of, and the center. And what is happening right now is obviously geared towards the right and the far right and the extreme right, if not the populist or even some segments that might be Completely illiberal and authoritarian that are very keen on uh, making sure that Islam is eradicated on the whole, but will only get this kind of uh, stance from the president about Islamist separatists.
1: So his strategy seems to be to throw raw meat to different and different directions raw meat to the left and raw meat to the right and try to somehow reconcile the two
2: yes right i mean maybe not reconcile but make sure that they can imagine that he would be the right man in the right place next year mm-hmm. i think it's all about that actually on the left i'm not even sure that he will get that much but there are still some people that might consider that he may be an option but to the right and to the far right this is uh i think that he he really tries very hard to get their attention and make sure that he looks quite suitable as the the president to be re-elected.
1: So over the past three decades at least, French government after French government have tried to deal with an increase in terrorist violence to no avail. Many of the perpetrators of this violence happen to be disaffected French-born citizens whose roots Mm -hmm. are either in North Africa or recently converted to a fundamentalist brand of Islam, the situation seems to keep getting more out of control, regardless of the increased sophistication of the police's techniques and and their increased repression. How do you account for this repeated continued failure? of the French government to contain this phenomenon?
2: I think it mainly pertains to the fact that the French government, or the French power actually, because it's not just this government, it has been so many of them for so long, they always consider that acknowledging the responsibility of the wider society in the expansion of uh, some sort of attraction to Islamism or to any kind of uh, extreme violence, was never to be blamed on the society, on the way it functioned, on the inequalities of the way there was this kind of colonial past and present always repressed, and of discriminations and structural racism. None of that can ever be mentioned because, and and up until now, I mean, if you try to make this kind of argument, you are always looked at if, You're trying to, uh, you're being naive, you're denying the reality of uh, transnational terrorism and so on. And so there's no point to be made. And we are right now in France in terms of who is speaking, who is having access to the media, who is having access to, to the power circles. Obviously, the people who have this kind of stance about hitting hard and uh, being very tough, they are the most influential.
1: In your work as an academic, you have documented the connections between the history of colonialism and today's problems of violence within France. There's a particular form of historical amnesia that is not special to France, but is certainly quite extreme in France. As recently as 1999, The very term of Algerian War of Independence was taboo in France. It wasn't Mm -hmm. really considered a war, even though arguably a million and a half or more people died during that war, which was a complete denial of the catastrophic nature of this conflict and the, the genocide that traumatized not only Algeria, but France itself. Tell us more about these connections, direct or indirect, between this amnesia and the refusal to acknowledge the past and France's current problems of violence and terrorism.
2: Yeah, this is the kind of connection that nobody would want to make because it seems to be either kind of too systematic, too caricatural. You know, that's interesting to view it that way. But actually, what really is happening is that the denial and the amnesia is uh, starting to vanish. Because on the one hand, the work and the scholarship of historians have become more available. Because this has also penetrated into popular culture. I mean, you know, like uh, movies, series, you would have a lot of mentions of this. You know, you would have maybe not enough, but you, you start to have characters who hold this kind of history or Algerian have something to say about that. So you hear more and more now and then voices that kind of relate to that and unearth this part of uh, the French history that uh, was so effectively buried. So this happens on the one hand. And what is interesting is that at the same time, or maybe because precisely this is becoming more and more something explicit For example, the younger generation would not shy away from this. I mean, they would not say, no, this never happened. No, I mean, they acknowledge the fact that there has been a war. And sometimes this is also something that could bring parts of the French ascent youth in France to move to the far right. Because, you know, this is also something that could bring you to the extremes about trying to rejuvenate The image of France as a country who is not just this colonial power that everybody describes, but has another kind of mission in the world. So, this also can drive you all the way to the right or to the far right. But interestingly, I think this, even on the left, even in the center, so this is why Macron is kind of ambiguous and kind of tactical about the way he uses this rather than he acknowledges the fact. It's that this is something that at the very best would be considered to be past and not to be brought into the conversation today in today's France, not even with relation to people who are related to this history, because the whole French society actually is related to this history, but especially those who have ancestors or are from Algerian or from African descent. And so this is what is quite striking, is the fact that the more this history appears and uh, resurfaces, the more the reaction and the, the resistance is violent and is vehement, you know, in a way that all the kind of blame is being put on the descendants of this history and on the French, who have this kind of very narrow relation and tie to to North Africa, to West Africa, to former colonies, uh, to slavery. They are being considered as to be like spoiling the the whole atmosphere, and they should be held accountable because of that. This is how it's turning. It's turning very sour,
1: actually. Recently, just a few weeks ago, a great historian who himself is from Algeria, Benjamin Storan, Mm -hmm. a Jewish Algerian Frenchman who now lives in, in France, was asked by the president, Emmanuel Macron, to write a report about this history that has been hidden from the French people and to ask him what to do. How do you bring this history back to the fore without provoking too much turmoil because it's such a difficult and painful thing 60 years later? And Benjamin Stora managed to basically anger everybody on every side anger, the descendants of those who were massacred, the Algerians, descendants of those who left Algeria, who didn't really feel they had the choice, were the colonists and the descendants of Algerian Jews, who also became French citizens. He managed to piss off descendants of those who we call the Harki, who -hmm. who were collaborators with France and had blood on their hands, some of them. Algerian blood on the head. Basically, Benjamin Star's report was very interesting because it managed to anger everybody. What was your reaction to that report?
2: Well, I was not angered. I, 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 was, I was rather kind of... I had the feeling that this was a missed opportunity. And especially, this was about time. And Benjamin star could have said that. He could have said it's not about... There is a French expression that you know that floats in the air about all these issues, which is repentance.
1: Repentance. I, I guess it's the same word in English. Yeah.
2: But usually in the U.S. or in anglophone countries, people would speak about reparations, rather. Yes. About extending excuses or apologies, apologies right, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: so this is something that has been dismissed from the beginning i mean the, the probably that the president asked stora to make sure that he would not Advocate. suggest in the report anything about repentance about apologies about excuses and he did so i mean he mentioned why this was not necessary And I think that this is when the whole report started to be kind of biased, because if you do not acknowledge what happened, then what? If there's no acknowledgement, if there's no solemn way of naming things, such as the way, as you mentioned, in 99, the Algerian war was named as a war, and not just as a, some sort of disorder. You know, they, they called them the events.
1: Disturbances, yeah, the events. Yeah, yes. they were
2: called events at some point. You know, it's like there was, no, there was not even uh, the slightest allusion to the fact that this was war. So if you do not name things properly, then you cannot address, you cannot tackle all that lies beneath and i think that this is why you know of course there are technical issues that he addressed very effectively but they do not reach the larger public they do not reach the the population i mean discussing about the archives is of course as a historian he knows a lot about that and i i know colleagues around me that have issues you know and and have huge problems trying to access Some of the archives that lie in France, instead of being in Algeria, or vice versa, whatever, a lot of archives of Algerian uh, history are in France. So I can understand that. But does this speak to the wider society and to the reality that has to be embraced, which is the fact that those two countries have a past of colonization, of oppression, of massacres of destruction of
1: concentration camps
2: yeah i mean you you name it so there are so many issues and you end up having this kind of items that do not really live up to the expectations that on both sides of the mediterranean sea and even in france if you i wouldn't dare trying to comment on on what algerians uh, would have to say about that And actually, when there were journalists asking them in Algeria what they thought about that, they said, this is going to be used by the power against us again. So they were not very optimistic uh, from the beginning about what would be the outcome of the report. But in France also, I think uh, that, yeah, it's a missed opportunity. There was something that could have been strong. And just to give you an example that's interesting... And that struck me when it happened. About a year and a half ago, Macron recognized that Maurice Audin was tortured by the French army in Algeria. Yes,
1: this is a very important instance of a French-Algerian a man who was really part of the colonial. Yeah, he
2: was. He was a resistance. But he, he was, was a communist he was resistant. He was a. He was a freedom fighter. He was anti-colonialist. I mean, he was fighting for the independence of Algeria.
1: Even though he, he was, was French a, himself. He
2: was. Yeah, Maurice Soudan. Obviously, he was French. He was from France. Actually, he was not a Piennoir. He was not born in Algeria. He went to Algeria as a teacher. He was teaching mathematics at the university. And he embraced the cause of the Algerians as they were fighting their war for independence. So because of that, he was arrested and tortured. Nobody ever knew what happened to him. They had very young children, but his wife never knew, was never told anything after he disappeared. And so she she fought all her life, mainly with a community of mathematicians. That's interesting. He was a mathematician and he was mathematicians. So he was teaching at the University of Algiers. And so, interestingly, they kept the memory and they kept this request and demand on the French state of explaining what happened to their colleague. This is something that is in, totally in contrast with what happened in Algeria because Maurice Souda is very much alive in the Algerian memory. When you go to Algiers, one of the central places in Algiers, uh, Place one Audin. of the main squares, yeah. is called La Place Audin. Everybody knows who is Maurice soda in Algeria. So that's interesting that you would have, you know, suddenly he's on earth. That's ironic to put it that way, but this is what happens. He's on earth. And Macron decides to have this kind of... Symbolic. Uh, symbolic, but also spectacular. I mean, he goes to the home of Suzanne Audin, the wife of in the suburbs of Paris, in Bagnolet, he goes to her place with Benjamin Stora to his side to tell her that he acknowledges that as a president of France, that her husband was tortured and was executed by the French army. So this happens. But then what? Like many other people, I was like, okay, so this uh-huh. is the perfect time to say yes. it's not Maurice yeah. Audin. It's, is, it's, it's the whole. Of them exactly. That were tortured, and they don't have a name that sounds French. They were Algerians, and they disappeared, and nobody knows where they are. And the French army knows, up until today, they know where they buried them, what they did to them. This is this very small part of the report that nobody speaks very much about, which is about to finally disclose the whereabouts of those dead bodies, those corpses, and to explain what happened to those people who are most of them, the majority of them are Algerians. But he didn't do it at that time. What he did is that he brought this French mathematician who died in solidarity because of the solidarity he expressed to the Algerians. So this was a very heroic figure that he offered to the French people and to the French media. But this was never followed by what should have come next, which is to say he is not the only one. There have been so many of them that the French army and um, the system of torture in Algeria was incredibly threatening in its organization and its effectiveness. So, you know, that gives you some sense of how far the French state, and especially Macron, is uh, willing to go. And I guess this is why the report of Benjamin Stora was framed in such ways that it wouldn't go as far as to consider that the time has come to acknowledge what happened and to be held accountable and to admit the responsibility of the French state in what happened during the Algerian War and during the colonization.
1: And yet France has done an exemplary job of acknowledging and atoning and apologizing to the Jews of France for what happened to them during World War II. About 70,000 of them were sent to the death camps of Nazi Germany. They did a great job there. It also took them about, what, 60 years to get to that Uh, point but they have done it.
2: 97, it was, I think it was... Under Chirac, wasn't it? Chirac, yeah, Yeah, I think it was 97.
1: 97, okay, so about 50 years. And they're starting to do this piecemeal for someone like Maurice Audin, who's a very important, iconic figure for everybody, not just for the Algerians, but for the French who believed in the values of the Enlightenment, etc. What's keeping France from doing more, from including the indigenous people of Alger who suffered the brunt of their violence? Does that have to do in some direct or indirect way with this strange situation that France finds itself in, with the violence that it can't find a way to contain on its own territory? Yeah, it's
2: a very difficult and... When I try to to sort that out, I think it's a very bad calculation on the part of the government and the the president when they think that in order to tame the anger of the far right, of the right, of those who consider that the Algerian war war is over and we don't have to go back to that and to start to have some kind of a public and, and official stance on it, And some of the people who are angered by Stora's uh, report are on the far right also. And uh, I think that this might seem clever, but actually this is just postponing the problem and pushing it back to some time nobody knows exactly when, actually, And except for some very tiny symbolic gestures that might happen now and then. But the whole purpose of coming to terms with this reality and doing the job of having a political stance that happens to be finally something that is dignified. This is not happening. And I think it's because precisely they don't want to anger even more an electorate that they count on, that they want to win to their project of winning the next election Because it's not just the presidential. In France, the system which is completely uh, biased, to my understanding, is that just after the presidential elections, you have the parliament elections a month or two months just after. So it's about really remaining in power, not only at the level of the presidential power of uh, the government, but also in the parliament.
1: In all of this, what is, in your opinion, the the role of the media, which unfortunately in France are, just like in the United States, are increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few Mm -hmm. right-wing billionaires. What is their role in all of this? Are they fanning the flames? Are they, what is going on in that score?
2: I mean, you have those that really very unapologetically fan the flames, they gain uh, viewers, they make money. So, yeah, they really cynically do it. And it's, also, it's very much those information networks, uh, rather, whether on, on radio or on TV. So there is this kind of... Uh, I'm not even sure that they are convinced of what they're doing. They're just very opportunistic. And they consider that this is where the wind takes them, takes them to very excessive, with no basis uh, kind of statements. And, and they bring all these people on, on the programs or on the shows, as you say, that really offer them all the kind of excess and all the kind of outrageous statements that they are looking for. So this is something that takes place in the majority of, uh, of uh, networks and, uh, and not to speak about social media. And on the other hand, you have those that think that they still have to be balanced and to uh, offer a voice to all sides. By doing that, they just pretend to overlook the fact that some of the voices that they give space to already have all the rest of the media open to them 24-7. So you have this kind of unbalanced perspective when it comes to the media in France, where there are a lot of voices that are not heard, because the space is completely invaded and kind of uh, hijacked by those voices that are more and more geared towards the right, to the far right, and to partisanship, although the parties are not that strong anymore in France because obviously the electorate is more volatile and uh, undecided so i'm not even sure that the parties would deserve that much space for what they had to say but this is how this is functioning right now in france in france which is a completely unbalanced mapping of uh, opinions of uh, of debates. Actually, the debates always turn very violent. I, I was just attending one today on a on a public TV, an information network, and uh, I just had to face incredibly, not just violent, but also kind of statements that were kind of delirious. What can you say in front of that? And he was a colleague of mine in a university who was saying that. So that gives you some sense of the the extremes which uh, we have to face now, in terms of uh, of speaking to articulate uh, interlocutors, this is more and more difficult to, to encounter.
1: Yes, whenever I listen to one of these debates, it quickly devolves into a shouting match very often. Mm-hmm. And as you are saying, it's not just ideological on the part of these billionaire-owned companies but it's also exploitative. They're exploiting yeah. whatever is going to sell more yeah. newspapers or bring more eyeballs to the shows.
2: Yeah, frankly. And just to give you an example, just a few days after this new law about trying to put under control Islamist Separatism. separatists in, in France, the Minister of Higher Education uh, made this statement on one of those uh, networks that is so keen on making money on uh, all kinds of outrageous debates that are just fictions. Uh, She stated that the French university is being completely invaded and uh, destroyed by Islamo-leftists that are bringing to France all kinds of theories that are kind of brought from the US campuses to France. And that because of that, the students in the French university are being completely disinformed. Brainwashed. uh, (laughs) Brainwashed. And uh, that something has to be done. And uh, she has called for... uh, some sort of an inquiry into those uh, different uh, departments and uh, the kind of uh, studies that are being taught in France. And actually, what is interesting is that anything that has to do with that is named in English. So that they would speak about gender in French, you know, it's like they would say gender, they would say post colonial studies, they would say intersectionality. So, this is all. Well, the, while speaking the, French using suspicious.
1: those English words, yes.
2: Yes, by uh, othering in some sort, you know, trying to other even more and to alterize this kind of uh, something that is being viewed as a new segment uh, of uh, French academia that has become completely out of control and disposing a danger to the French society. This is how it is being framed.
1: In the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo atrocities, then Prime Minister Mr. Valls famously blurted out that the state of abandonment of certain poor neighborhoods in Paris and France, uh, which are heavily North African and sub-Saharan African, may have have something to do with the problem of terrorist violence. But was there any follow-up in terms of trying to alleviate this type of root problem, root cause perhaps, social injustice? Or did the French state just pursue exclusively repressive measures to cope with the violence?
2: I think it was always about uh, finding a culprit and uh, designating him or them to the French population and to make sure that uh, they would be under control And it's only about repression. And this has been going on now since the mid-90s. So it's almost 25 years. And I don't see any change in the policy, although there there have been so many inquiries, uh, studies, reports written on this that say that this is not the manner and this is not how the, the, the French government should handle this issue. But so far, they are completely deaf and they totally disregard this kind of uh, of analyze. One government after the other, they are just rushing towards more and more repression, more and more the politics of the culprit and uh, scapegoating. And so this is what's uh, mainly taking place. So much so that the same vals you mentioned also said at some point, and I think it was uh, just after Charlie Hebdo massacre, he mentioned that, um, that actually sociologists and social sciences that tried to explain were excusing what was happening. So, it totally disqualified the whole field of research of the social sciences as being completely irresponsible. And now we are moving to Islamo-leftists, who are supposed to be precisely the social scientists.
1: To come back to this new package of so-called anti-separatism laws, among Mm -hmm. the new measures proposed by Macron's government and about to be adopted into law are a series of new rules to try to clamp down on mosques that are subsidized and influenced by foreign countries such as Saudi Arabia which espouses mm-hmm. sometimes violent ideologies in the name of, of Islam. Is there any value to these new rules, in your, in your opinion? Are, are they going to be alleviating any of the problem, the, this problem of violence that continues?
2: No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that this is the right way to handle this question. Let me just make two points on this. First, Saudi Arabia is always pointed at as this kind of... Uh, this uh, sub- power, you know, that cr- tries to subvert French Muslims and so on. But at the same time, I mean, France uh, sells so much arms to the Saudi. I think it's the 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 largest trade between France and uh, Saudi Arabia is about arms and uh, military uh, gear and uh, and so on. And there is some sort of a discrepancy in this. It's like you know, we can we can agree to sell all kind of uh, uh, military equipment. But on the other hand, we don't want the influence of the Saudis in France, especially through uh, funding mosques. I'm not saying that this is right, that the Saudis would fund mosques in France. I'm just saying that then there should be some sort of reciprocity in the way you consider Saudi Arabia as a commercial partner. This is one thing. And the other is, the question of funding of mosques has been a question raised 30, or 40 years ago. And at the time, you had local organizations that wanted to raise money through the worshipers, through the, the Muslims that were around them. But they, this was not allowed either. This was always seen as something suspicious. I mean, there was no way that they could organize themselves as a French Muslims living in a neighborhood and, and trying to organize so that they would have proper and dignified spaces where to pray. And this is something that has always been dismissed since then. And I have an example. Personally, I was the vice president for about 10 years of... Uh, the Islamic Cultures Institute in Paris, which is in, uh, in Barbès, you know, the northern Paris uh, immigrant area where you have a lot of North African and West Africans who are Muslim. And I remember when when this uh, whole institute was uh, still a project and because there would be a prayer room in the two buildings, actually there's only one that was built because of the new mayor the current mayor who didn't want to open access to the second building to be built. And so I remember having these conversations with people around the the Paris mayor in, in his team and saying, maybe we should try to see who in France, as French Muslims, would be willing to organize in order to to run this uh, prayer room, that could not be run by the by the Paris mayor because uh, big municipality because of laïcité, which is fine, but they never meant to further go into down this path in order to see whether Muslims would be willing to organize and to and to raise money in order to to rent this place or to buy this place and become sovereign in the way they would practice their religion. Instead, they made an agreement with the Paris mosque that was directly connected to Algeria, which is a way to have a foreign country being involved in the organization of a prayer room or or a mosque. It was not really a mosque, it was a prayer room in Paris. So that gives you some sense of the inability to be pragmatic about this issue. And so much so that now that we have this piece of law that is not completely passed, but is very likely to be passed and implemented, it's all about repression again. It's not about building the kind of of common understanding of how Muslims can practice in a proper way without having any kind of influence without having to deal with foreign countries because they, don't, they cannot find the money in France in order to have prayer rooms or mosques. And this lack of confidence that they put in, in the Muslims is at the core of, of this new piece of law. It's all about distrust, actually, rather than trying to solve problems that were never solved.
1: So 60 years after the last major colonial war in France... One major fault line that remains is between overt advocates of Israeli colonialism and those who advocate for the rights of people, their rights to Mm self-determination. And and this creates all sorts of frictions and double standards, friends having the largest Jewish population and the largest North African population at the same time. Mm -hmm. How does this split this deep split and double standards that that we see around it, how does that figure into France's current challenges in terms of this violence that we're seeing?
2: I think this is very tricky, the way it works, because it's always kind of undercover. It's it's not supposed to be discussed. I mean, there has been this kind of official stance in, uh, in France for many decades stating that there are people who are willing to import the Palestinian-Israeli conflict into France as if it wasn't already... <laughs> yes, already <there. laughs> yes. Right. It's, it has always already been there. Given that position about saying, you know, you are imposing on the French arena, on the French public space, on the French political arena, you are imposing this debate that, sh- that shouldn't be there. And so once you say that, the only thing you can do is pretend to act as an ally of Israel, as as a country that was uh, legitimate in the way it was founded. And of course, this serves also some sort of a suspicion that goes on against Arabs, Muslims, former colonized North Africans, and so on. So this is exactly how it's functioning. I mean, and I think that there's something cynical coming from the, the French state and the French power, which is this kind of philo that only plays out in order to diminish and to disqualify or to even disenfranchise large segments of the French population or, who are either from colonial descent who are Muslim, who are Arabs, or French Arabs, or Arab French, however you want to call them. And I think this is how it's playing. And it has gone all the way to criminalizing people who act in favor of the international campaign on boycott, divestment, and uh, sanction. It is criminalized in France.
1: So, in other words, it's those people who are holding the status quo, which is an alliance between France and Israel, unquestioned, Mm -hmm. that would rather avoid any debate, that might question the reason for the status quo. And those who do not subscribe to that state of affairs are portrayed as troublemakers.
2: Yeah, troublemakers and anti-Semite. As you may know, in Europe, there are different countries who are trying to have some sort of a definition of what an anti-Semite is. And so far, and, and quite problematic to me, it's that the equation between anti-Zionism or criticism of the, the state of Israel with regard to occupation and uh, colonialism is equated as anti-Semitism.
1: There's a very strong push, both in France and the rest of Europe and, and the United States, mm-hmm. to make it an official language. Facebook, yeah. among others, has been uh, talking about adopting this language that anybody criticizes Israel is by definition anti-Semitic. You cannot complain about Israeli politics against Palestinians or against anyone else, unless you're an anti-Semite.
2: Yes, so that leaves very little space, if any space, to what you can say or what you, you want to, the kind of arguments you want to make in favor of the Palestinian rights. I mean, since everything that you could say in favor of the Palestinians would be held against you as being anti-Semite.
1: And this has been used against, again, against this uh, so-called separatism. Whoever is advocating for Palestinian rights is often associated with the problem that they have sympathies for the terrorists.
2: Right. It's It's the same line of thought, actually. It's a way to reify a large range of, of thought, of of positions. Uh, it's it's a way to completely transform a whole Not even a community, because you cannot think of a a Muslim community in France. You have many communities who are Muslims and have different kind of background of also beliefs. I mean, besides the fact that there are Muslims, there are many other things. So you could even think of something as unified as as a Muslim community in France. So the reification of being Muslim in France of course, becomes something very easy to conflate with being anti-Semite. And this is exactly what some people are keen on doing whenever they can. So this equation has become completely toxic for a lot of Muslims in France.
1: Unfortunately, the far right in France is ever closer to seizing power, the same way it did here in the U.S. for four years And with each terrorist attack on French soil, the chances of seeing a Le Pen presidency grow more plausible. The elder Le Pen, Marie Le Pen's uh, father, Mm -hmm. who ran for president before her, was a notorious and bloody torturer during the war in Algeria. That very torture that has been denied and obscured and disappeared by the French government and French history books. He was a bloody torturer himself. Uh, mm-hmm. something you will never find out from the French media or in textbooks. And French media in general are very discreet about this stuff. In your estimation, what can be done to avoid this infernal uh, vicious cycle of, of, of going ever further to the right?
2: I mean, maybe the, the, I would say that the problem is that the right is not acknowledged for what it is, which is fascism. I can remember back in the 80s when there was the first real political gains of uh, the front national back then this was its name and it was 1984 and when le pen re as uh, the leader of this party he was defined as a populist as a far-right but nobody w- would ever mention the the fascism issue
1: and the blood on his hands it,
2: yeah it has been part of the public debate because someone brought back to the fore all these issues. Uh, in the late 90s, it was General Oussares yes, who admitted very easily you know, on, on TV programs and even information programs. And he described what he did and to whom he did it. So, of course, this shed light on Le Pen and some others. Uh, because, especially because General Osares was a general. So, of course, he had other officers under his command to do that. And not just officers, a lot of people were just there in order to torture. So this came back to into the conversation. But even so, even so, even when Le Pen was... Uh, obviously and, and sometimes he even claimed that you know the fact that he was yeah of course I was I was part of the of the algérie française I wanted uh, algeria to remain french and I fought for that so he wouldn't be shy on this you know he would just mention it that, that was okay for him but this never led any further than just saying okay so he said so but this was never kind of uh, a criminal issue to yeah. the fact that this was fascism coming back from where it has always been in France because it has never really disappeared between the two world wars they were there the fascists were very powerful and this led to what happened during World War II which was the collaboration with the Nazi and the collaboration with the deportation of Jews in France and all the camps that also were open and filled with people in France. So, yeah, I think this is why there is a problem with uh, this kind of drift towards the far right.
1: And we have a continuum. It's not just, here we're not even talking about politicians such as Mitterrand, the late president, Mm -hmm. who uh, was in charge during this torture regime in Algeria. He was (laughs) minister of justice. And he was yes, condoning he, what was yeah, happening. He, yeah, we're, he
2: knew. Not only did he know, but he was the one who said it's, uh, he gave the green light to do so.
1: Right, the so-called socialist. We're not even talking about politicians under whose leadership these things happen. In the case of Le Pen, we're talking about somebody who personally, with his own hands, tortured and killed people and boasts mm-hmm. about it.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm always astonished when I see that people would just hear that and not make the connection with the kind of, of fascism that underlies under his statements. The fact that this is what he brought back into, not only to the French society, but also to the political arena. This is what he brought back. And, and people would always try to avoid this, because I think that there's so much that has been easily forgotten because of amnesia and amnistia, let's not forget that both took place at the end of World War II and at the end of, of the Algerian amnesty, war, Amnesty, Amnesty, mm-hmm. right. it was about amnesia and amnesty, yes. it was about both. So, you know, this is a perfect combination for not facing, for always finding a way to deny the reality, to dismiss all kind of uh, warnings that are have been made time and again. And this is where we are now. The reaction, the reactionary position in which the power stands now, it seems to be astonishing to many people, but not to those that saw it coming from a long time ago.
1: There has never been a clean break in France between colonialism, which was a a form of fascism outside of France's borders.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The overwhelming support that Hitler and his regime in Pétain received, enjoyed in French Algeria, let's not forget that the Mm -hmm. French, the so-called French, the the Europeans in Algeria, the Piennoir, were Mm -hmm. supportive of Pétain, not de Gaulle, they were on the side of the fascists. There was never an acknowledgement or a break with that. In 1961, the French government was almost hijacked by a fascist, overtly fascist coup, putsch. Mm-hmm. So there's this continuum and this real unease about acknowledging the past, which still yeah, seeps that, exactly. into the present. Exactly. Yeah. You're
2: right, because this would mean, for example, to... And this is something that has been discussed after the, the report of Benjamin Storin. It was about trying, you know, to recall what happened between 54 and 62, which are the the years of the Algerian War, and what happened in France and what were the major events. And when one speaks about the Fifth Republic, the constitution under which we are being ruled right now, nobody would ever mention the fact that back in 1958, the way de Gaulle came back to power was considered back then by a lot of Democrats as a coup. To them, it was what they call a putsch. They didn't consider that he democratically came back to power. I can remember people telling me that. This is a very hard and it's almost disheartening statement for some people to make. But the, some of them do recognize and do acknowledge the fact that this republic was founded by a coup. And we are still living under its rule. It was meant to dismantle the the French colonial empire, obviously, but the, the maybe because of that, it happened through a coup. It was in it was instated through a coup, and this is still something that uh, is not widely discussed and, and certainly not acknowledged. So, of course, the the the. The power that triggered it back then, which was a fascist power, is still there, entrenched in the very fifth republic uh, rule and in the constitution, although it is a constitution. I mean, it's legal, it's more or less democratic. Let's even say it's more democratic than one uh, uh, would, there's no criticism against, against that. It's just that the way the power is being shaped the the way it is being uh uh it it is being considered to to be the 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 thing of one person you know it's a presidential system as one says it all has to do with the the colonial times in which it was uh, it was thought meant and put in place
1: there's a lot of dirty laundry that's not supposed to be aired in public in other words Finally, Nasir, I thank you. You've been very generous with your time. The last question I would like to ask you, and it's a large one, but we can go—you uh, know—we don't have to delve too much into it. Maybe we can continue this conversation some other time. The issue of immigration—it continues to mar French politics, giving an edge to right-wing forces that equate immigration with a dilution of French identity and culture. And that's a phobia that is shared by a lot of Western liberal democracies with uh, right-wing xenophobes such as Trump, Salvini, Le Pen, Boris Mm -hmm. Johnson, uh, using it as a wedge to gain power. What can be done to untie this knot? How do we treat immigrants with dignity without at the same time losing elections?
2: Well, I would say that the answer lies in the hands of uh, younger generations. This is something quite striking to see how there is a deep gap between uh, what used to be viewed as uh, exclusively as a problem, as a threat, and and the way now you have some segments of uh, the, the younger French population, I would speak for France, but I think it's quite the same in other countries, that uh, consider that... Immigration or migrations, to put it in general, is an absolute ordinary phenomenon that we just have to accept and, uh, and, uh, and also uh, maybe work harder to, to, to make it more livable for those who have to migrate and to, to live their countries on the one hand. And on the other other hand, it's all about, for those who who really try to understand why immigration is is so massive, it's that you just have to realize how imperialism is still very strong in the world, no surprise in this, and that it has a huge impact on, on the countries from where these people come from. So, of course, if you do not think in terms of the the very narrow interconnectedness between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in all those former colonies that are still under uh, the control of, uh, of, you know, those kind of former colonies, but in a different way. So if you don't put that in perspective, then you keep on thinking and saying we don't want them in our country and they are just uh, a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, either disgust because there is this kind of repulsion towards the, the migrants or they are a matter of problem. They, they, they will only bring problems with them. And of course, this is very convenient. And then this leads to uh, this kind of uh, pervasive and, and extended racism that we are experiencing in France. And I think that the only thing that can work against that is uh, is to raise the consciousness of and, and the level of awareness uh, with relation to what history was about, to what countries like France did all, the, all over the world and how they should feel responsible today about what they are still doing and uh, what this is triggering and what this is imposing on people in all, uh, you know, like all West Africa, there was like a week ago, there was a meeting of uh, of West African leaders with the with the with the French president about um, the Barkan operation in Mali and beyond, uh, fighting terrorism, and and it's all this is where it starts. the 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 question of migration is not some sort of a, as we know, as you know, I, I, and I, I imagine it's also the case of people who will listen to your radio. it's it's not something that they willingly uh, uh, decide to do, just like the people that come to Southern California are coming from South Af- South America and uh, and so if it's not a matter of education of uh, raising awareness of uh, the common responsibility we all have towards that and to impose that to the state to make this uh, kind of a very strong statement about uh, forced migrations in in a way or another are always forced migrations You, you don't have some sort of something that would be called you know like willing migrations that you 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 embrace without any kind of uh, second thought. No, you really have to to address that. And this would lead to something that would maybe uh, bring us out of this kind of double standard that that is being imposed on, on people in France, which is that if you have some sort of a migrant background, then you are doomed to a lower standard, to less rights, to ordinary racism, to all kind of harassment, and to discrimination. So how to find that if it's not through education? I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being very simplistic, but this is something I practice in my university. I've been doing that for 20 years. And this is one of the very few ways to be effective against this tendency to build immigration as the problem that could not be solved and therefore leads to more repression and to also the narrowing of uh, freedom and rights for all people because this is not just affecting migrants. This is also affecting the whole society. The fact that they are being under pressure, experiencing this kind of duress. I think this is something that also affects the whole society and dismantles a kind of openness and ability to, to welcome that has never been expressed thoroughly in France.